legacy means a lot of things to a lot of people. To some, it's lasting integrity. It's building and maintaining a history of greatness. It's making an impact on people and community. For others, it's dependable security and assurance in an uncertain time. To us, it's all of that and more. It's a mindset, a brother and sisterhood of hardworking people dedicated to doing the right thing for you and those you care about. Of growing today for a better tomorrow. That's what legacy means at Southwestern Legacy Insurance Group. What does it mean to you? Let's talk legacy. Welcome to Let's Talk Legacy. I'm your host of the show, Gary Michaels, and we're really excited about today's show. I'm going to be speaking with, in a moment you're going to be hearing from him, Soon Yu, who's an international speaker, award-winning and best-selling author on branding, innovation, and design, and Forbes contributor who has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Entrepreneur Magazine, and New York Times. He has taught at Parsons School of Design and often guest lectures at Stanford University there in the Bay Area where he's received his MBA and is an active alumni. So welcome to the show soon. Well, thank you very much for having me here. It's exciting to be a part of your show. Thank you. So you followed up a degree in electrical engineering from the U- University of California. Is that UC Berkeley? No, I actually went to the UC Davis. I know where it is. I went to UC Santa Barbara. So we're both UC uh, graduates. You had an, an MBA from Stanford University in the early 90s. What were you originally setting up your career path to look like at that time? And, and what was your vision back then? Well, the way you described it and set it up, it sounds like I was very confused. And guess what, Gary? You are absolutely right. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, you know, the, the show is about the idea of legacy. And probably when you're 18, you may not be thinking that. You're probably thinking about, you know, what do you want to do from a career perspective or what your passions might be. And I remember as a high schooler going to Davis High School uh, and thinking to myself, you know, I either want to go into fashion design or, you know, leverage off the math skills that I had and become an engineer. Well, I was from a fairly strict Asian family and they weren't going to pay for my fashion degree. So I ended up going into engineering. And honestly, Gary, I spent the last, I don't know, 30 years trying to go back to the roots of wanting to deal with fashion and the idea of trends and the idea of having people use clothing and apparel as a way, footwear as a way of expressing themselves. And you'll see that prior to being an author and speaker and all that, I actually worked for the largest apparel company in the world and worked on innovation and design for them. So they came full circle. So what happened, like you were saying, I, I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I did engineering for a little while, realized it's a little too I would say um, technical and not enough, I think, people interaction for me. And so what I decided to do was uh, after graduating from electrical engineering, I interviewed with anybody who wasn't electrical engineer. I even interviewed for Safeway's produce training program where they grilled <laughs> me on, I don't know, they, they asked me to name like 10 types of lettuce. I can name three or two iceberg, uh, green leaf, butter. <laughs> right. And, and so anyway, yeah. Um, but yeah, I ended up at a consulting firm. And then from there with the business school, then after business school, I said, you know what? I want to sell something. I want to actually build something and sell something. And I ended up at Clorox uh, selling toilet bowl cleaners, Gary. Wow. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> How was that experience? You know, it's funny. Um, I think 
the main thing it taught me is that uh, brand management, if, if that's something you're interested in, it really doesn't matter about the product or the brand. It is really about the idea that, you know, you've been given this uh, privilege and responsibility to take care of the relationship between that product and brand with the consumer. And, and you feel a, you know, if, if you enjoy brand management, you, you really feel a strong sense of ownership. And so it doesn't matter how ugly, fat, or tall, or whatever your brand is, you're going to do everything you can to make sure that brand, you know, is well fed and gets to school on time and gets a great education and grows up the way it's supposed to grow up. And I, I think having to manage by the least sexy brand at Clorox, besides maybe Combat Roach Killer, which was another one of the brands. Right. I learned the idea of ownership of a brand and that it didn't matter what type of brand you had. And, and, and so. Yeah, I think that that was pretty exciting to to be able to manage something like Toilet Bowl Cleaners. So then you went in 1998, you founded Gazuntite. Gazuntite, yep. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> which was a retailer of allergy and asthma related products. That's right. You can tell I have a fairly nonlinear, nonsensical uh, career. You know, while I was at Clorox, one of the things I was uh, there for was to actually learn how to build a business. And it's, it's one thing to do it for a large Fortune 500 company, right? Cause you have all the resources available to you. And so it's not that it was cushy, but you were well resourced. I always had the bug to say, well, what could I do this on my own? Could I actually, you know, start a business from scratch? Could I build a product from scratch? And so I said, you know what? Let's, let's put this sort of idea to test and actually go do it. So I quit my Clorox job and I had this retail idea on the back of my head saying, you know, a lot of people have allergies and asthma. And there's really no central place where people can get products. But I didn't know anything about retail here. I was pretty clueless. Anyway, so I said, I got to learn retail. So I quit my Clorox job and took an 85% pay cut and worked at Crate and Barrel for one year learning retail. And I did everything from, you know, um, I was a stock boy. I did inventory control. I did the back room. I cleaned bathrooms. And I did that for a year. And while I was doing that, I actually... Um, Wrote the business plan and, you know, it's funny. My, my mornings began every morning. I'd have a list of 60 people I had to call before I got into my car and drove up to Crate Barrel and work. And those were the six people that I had that day to beg money from. And so I did that for about a year before I finally raised some money for the idea. And then I was able to leave the Crate Barrel job and finally start the Zoom time focused on helping people breathe happier. Well, from what I understand, that's where you started to use the omni-channel retailer. And for people that don't understand what that is, can you explain? So omni, basically, the definition of omni is, is singular or one, you know, sort of one encompassing, right? And so the idea of omni-channel was that you would take all these, you know, different types of channels, different, think of, think of them as different ways to buy products. So you could go to a retail store, and at that time, the whole dot-com was sort of busting out, right? And so you could also go to a website. You could also back in the days, order stuff on a catalog. So what happened is when we launched the retail store, we actually launched all three channels. Day one, which was I think April 1999, when we launched, we had all three up and we got tremendous credit for being the first sort of retailer out there that uh, was founded on the idea of being omni or being, you know, omnipresent in terms of uh, available everywhere on all on three different channels. But Gary, here's a little secret on that. It was by accident. 
we originally wanted just to do the retail store. But anyone that's ever done a retail store, especially if you're trying to get into a uh, physical store that is being built, you know, like literally is being, you know, the, the, the tenant improvements are all being done as, as, as it can take six to nine months. And so like in any construction project, there are times where you're super busy and there are times where you're literally waiting for the paint to dry on the wall or for the concrete to finally arrive so they could pour, right? And during those low periods, I just looked around the, the team we had and said, well, what else can we do? Hey, hey the website seems kind of like a natural and let's, let's, why not, if we have a website and we have pictures, why don't we turn it into a catalog? And so it was literally because we had nothing else to do while we're waiting for the paint to dry that we actually built the other two channels because Isn't that crazy. Isn't that crazy how you fall into stuff, but luck is where preparation meets opportunity and you had <laughs> the preparation and opportunity, right? That's crazy. It was crazy. And, you know, we did get really lucky. And so it was it was a, a, quite a fun ride. Yeah. <laughs> so you founded and been CEO for many other startups as well. Share some of those other endeavors and maybe if there's any common ground that you like to have in your companies. Well, you know, it's funny. We're talking about this idea of legacy. And I would probably say that I'm best known for my failures more than I say my success. The way I view those failures is, and this is what I teach my son, and this is what I oftentimes talk about, it's the hard work, the resilience, and the reaching out to other people. It's the ability to pick yourself back up once you've failed. And so I oftentimes say part of my legacy is having, I mean, if you looked at my wiki profile, you would see in there that Gazuntai and me are listed as the poster child of web access and stupidity. Okay. So that was actually taken from Wall Street Journal. Wow. But I tell my son, it's how you pick yourself up. And sometimes it's just timing, like you said. Sometimes you were in the, you know, had the right idea at the wrong time. For example, one of the um, companies that I helped found um, was called Buzz Hits. And it was an incredible company in 1999, 99, 2000. I was in the shower and I was, you know, had the radio on. I was like, oh, what? I love this song. What's the name of the song? Who sings it? I had no clue. And I literally called up uh, two guys that were working at Clorox at the time. And I said, hey, guys, we should start a company, hire a bunch of high schoolers who are really like hip on uh, the music scene, uh, put them in a room, and then just have an 800 number that people can call up. And if they, they want to know the name of the song on a certain radio station, we'd know it and we'd tell them. Now, the good thing is those guys, they actually figured out we can actually do this with technology, not with a bunch of high schoolers in the back right. room. <laughs> and so we basically uh, created the precursor to what is now known as Shazam. Shazam. Yeah, that's awesome. I remember the very first song that we were able to listen to the airwaves and basically pick up instantaneously was uh, Bye 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 by, I think it was Insane. So um, I mean, just remember how excited I was about that. And, and the problem back then you had probably had a flip phone or that in you know, a little Nokia block, whatever it was, right? So you'd flip your flip phone open. You'd have to dial our 800 number because it wasn't a smartphone at that time, right? You actually had to dial our 800 number. And then you'd actually have to put the phone next to the speaker. And then we then would send you the name of the song plus a link to Amazon to buy not an MP3, a CD. So think about the levels of friction required. And because of that, it just was an idea that was ahead of its time. If we had launched that probably five years later, man, it's just there. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Right. Well, you, you talked about failures. I actually have a scorecard of failure. I, it's so prominent. You know, I talk about the idea that I've had five career restarts. 
And that's just sort of a euphemism for the idea that it's not I, you know, some recruiter called me up and said, hey, I've got a new function or new new industry that you should go check out. I got fired. <laughs> I got fired from my job or canned because I wasn't very successful or I did something that, you know, just wasn't good. And and so I got, you know, I've got canned five times. I This is the hardest number in my little scorecard is the number six. That's the number of times I've actually sit across with people that I got to know very well, that we shared a common vision and mission and, and say, look, I'm not sure we have payroll next month. And then a couple months after that, sometimes I have the conversation, guess what? I have to do a layoff here. And I've had over almost 30 major product failures or brand failures in my life. That's quite a lot. And the last number I always use is this number 300. And people, I guess, tell people to guess what it is. They say, it looks like a really high number, but it's actually a really low number. And that's my credit score. I've achieved that twice in my life. 300 is as low as you can go. You can't go below 300. It is the basement. And and so, yes, I, I've done a lot of, the, you know, learned a lot from failures. Yeah. And it goes back to that, um, what you talked about is how quickly do you bounce back? I, I always talk about a concept called BBF, bounce back fast. And what is your bounce back factor to how quickly you can bounce back? Because if you're not failing, that means you're not trying, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and you're not you know, trying to get better. So you, most recently, you served as Global VP of Innovation at BF Corporation, which is the parent organization to over 30 global apparel companies, including North Face, Vans, Timberland, et cetera. So tell us a little bit about that and, and how how you being the global VP of innovation has really helped you grow and what your role is doing that. I think what was interesting coming to an organization like VF was it had 30 different brands. And what I realized is that there were 30 silos. These brands didn't really talk to each other. And part of what I realized in, in this idea of innovation is if you have a great idea and it works in one brand, think about the value of scaling across all 30 brands. But I think one of the key learnings I had was how do I sell an idea that from day one going to be opposed because either another brand did it and they don't like that brand, they're jealous of that brand or they find the brand competitive, or it's coming from corporate to really learn how to take my ideas and systematically make it other so that was probably the key skill set I learned in working at such a large multi-matrix, multi-branded company was the idea of taking an idea that I had and actually making it Gary's idea. And a lot of times it'd be, I'd talk to Gary, I'd just sit there and I'd listen to everything Gary said. And especially if Gary didn't like the idea, I'd take all these fastidious notes. And then a couple things I'd do. You really hated the idea. Oftentimes, you know, if I was presenting it back to a larger group and you were in there, I would say... You know, I originally had this great idea and I was going down this path and I met with Gary and he pointed out three fatal flaws. And thank God Gary did that because we would have wasted a ton of money. And Gary, you know, you know, humbly submit the idea that I made a pivot because of your advice. And all of a sudden it's like, hey, now it's Gary's pivot, Gary's idea, right? Or you said something so salient and insightful. I would actually put your quote up on this on a PowerPoint. And say, this is what Gary said. This is words of advice he did Gary. And if it was even super brilliant, sometimes I'd say, this is the Gary principle. <laughs> and I'm naming <laughs> principle after you, Gary, right? Yeah, so, you're moving up in this world, right? <laughs> <laughs> what I actually did is oftentimes I present to the CEO and his 12 direct reports. I knew who I was presenting to and it was going to be coming up in three months. I'd make sure I meet with all 12 of those people. And in that meeting, whatever the idea I was presenting, I'd make sure I'd mention at least 
everyone's name at least twice in that meeting, giving them credit for an insight, a pivot. And so by the end of the presentation, it's quiet because all of a sudden everyone realized they had co-created this idea together. I love it. Love that concept. Now, I know that your latest book, Friction, challenges business to consider adding more friction to their customers' employees, suggesting that a little extra work actually has big physical, mental, and emotional benefits. So that's kind of going against what you would, which you would think would be the, let's see, I want no stress. I don't want friction. <laughs> like, t- talk to me a little bit about that. So I'll tell you how I came up with the idea. It actually came up with the first book, which is actually very relevant to your whole podcast, which is my first book was really around the idea of how do you, how do some brands stand the test of time? How are they able to be relevant 50 years ago, relevant today, and they'll still be relevant 50 years from now. And this idea, this, you know, idea of how do they build legacy? How do these great brands build legacy? So I wrote a bat book called Iconic Advantage and it really reverse engineered, uh, the strategy that great businesses like Amazon, Google, Nike, Burberry, you know, a bunch of these great, I researched 50 companies and basically understood that they intentionally go out to create a timeless brand. A brand that stood for something distinctive that was highly relevant. And with the longevity of being relevant for that distinction, they became the standard bearer for that distinction and eventually became iconic. You know, in reverse engineering the sort of the strategies and principles and best practices to do that, one of the things I learned is that oftentimes these brands are known for something and they will create signature elements that help people, that remind people about What's so cool or unique about this brand? I'll give you a simple example. The lime in the neck of a Corona beer is a signature element. It's uniquely Coronas. And it reminds you that you could be on the rooftop in Manhattan in a blizzard, okay? But you put a lime in that Corona, you're immediately flashed back to the time you were in Cancun or, or, you know, Cabo San Lucas or wherever you might be because that's your vacation beer, you know? There's also... The idea of signature experiences, experiences that really are sticky and help remind you about the brand. So I'll give you one simple example. The great brands that have great signature experiences don't take friction out. They actually put friction into it so that you remember it, so that you interact with it, so that you will actually spend time and energy and and sweat a little relative to the signature experience. Let's say you and I wanted to buy a flash drive and we buy it and it's in this plastic clamshell, you know, those little and you have to take your scissors and cut them open and then you still have to use your fingers and try to pry it open. It's not that easy, right? It takes you two or three minutes to do that. And that whole two or three minutes of opening up that package is what I would consider very bad for you. It doesn't add to the experience. Well, here's a company that said, you know what? We're going to make opening our package take a lot longer than anybody else in the universe. In fact, on average, it's going to take 20 minutes to fully open our package and unveil what's available from the product. And you're like, what, 20 minutes? It's Apple. You think about the Apple package and how it's multi-layered and each each layer has a little piece of the product and it's interacting and unveiling that product. That is an example of actually adding good friction to a situation that actually creates an even better brand experience. Interesting. You want to own Mindshare. And the way to do that isn't to become frictionless or seamless. We talk about there's seven virtues of good friction. So there's engagement, right? There's the, uh, think of different ways of engagement, gamify, interaction, co-creation. These are all ways of engagement. Another is meaning. 
you know, anything meaningful oftentimes takes some degree of investment. Uh, most people that win the lottery, let's say they win $10 million, the statistics show that uh, they are at a higher risk of going bankrupt. If you and I spent, let's say, 30 years in our career working our butts off, making sacrifices, missing meals or missing family time, and in that process, we were able to earn five or $10 million in, in, you know, and retire with that, right? Are we going to treat $10 million the same way as somebody who won the lottery? Hell no. Right? And when we give our legacy back to our families, it's not just the money, but what all the sweat, tears, love that went into making that versus the easy friction of winning the lottery. So meaning, belonging, like you think about the idea of wanting to belong to a group. Um, we talk about rapport. You know, um, one of the best ways to actually get close to somebody isn't to just do a favor. It's actually to ask for favors. Benjamin Franklin did this. He had this rival who hated him. But the rival had this incredible book collection, had a very rare book inside of the book collection. Benjamin, he, he was a bit of a nerd himself. So he actually wrote a note and asked to borrow the most sacred book that this guy owned. And the guy said, huh, well, he wants to borrow it. He must love books. Okay, I guess we must have some shared. So he let the book and they became fast friends. And you wow. think when you, when you do a favor for somebody, you become vested in that other person. So that's actually asking a favor is a good way to get close to someone, right? So there's rapport, there's assurance. You know, the whole Tylenol scare happened because there was no triple packaging. Now, you know, honestly, that little inconvenience actually adds to the experience. If, if you and I bought some medicine and it didn't have childproof or a wrap, a shrink wrap, or whatever, we, we'd be like kind of scared to use it, right? Competence, and then lastly, exclusivity, this idea that if it's too easy to get, sometimes you don't appreciate it. So as you know, our, our show is called Let's Talk Legacy, and that's that's huge for myself, anybody involved in our company, because we're, we're dealing with people and the people they love and protecting them. What does legacy mean to you? So it's so funny, before uh, I got on with you, and I know you had a little bit of internet connection, I got to spend time with your producer, Zach. And we were just talking about that exact idea. Right. And I looked up the definition in uh, Merriam-Webster's, and it's all about this idea of what you leave behind from a financial you know, perspective, right? And that's the main definition. But then I looked at Urban Dictionary, and I thought Urban Dictionary is a little more philosophical, and I'm going to read it to you. Legacy, planting seeds in a garden you never get to see. What I really love about that is who are you planning the garden for and what are you hoping they see? And so I think of legacy in terms of not just obviously the lead behind from financial security or what you and I talked about, you know, the love, sweat and tears and, and hard work that it took to sort of leave that financial legacy, but it's also reputational. And I also think at the end of the day, part of it is that you leave legacy for those you love Part of, I think the first person you start with is self-love. You want to look yourself in the mirror and say, hey, did I do what I could to help those around me, including myself, you know, live a little bit better? And if you can say yes, then guess what? Every day you build part of that legacy. And, you know, so legacy is built for those we love. And one of those people we love is ourselves. I think it's a pretty good legacy. Absolutely. We were talking today about your latest book, Friction, but your first book, Iconic Advantage, challenges business to focus their innovation priorities on building an iconic brand. Honestly, iconic is, is just another word of saying legacy, right? It, it's what you're known for and what you've built a reputation. Right. 
how does legacy take place in your family? So there's two things as a father I think about. Not only are is my wife and son well taken care of today, but if I somehow disappeared and, you know, God forbid that happened, that they would be taken care of in those circumstances. That's kind of at what I call a very uh, rudimentary, but a very fundamental level. And in turn, the other legacy I think about is that for our son, if he studies and he does good in school, we like it, but where I really want him to, you know, where I spend a lot of time and energy with him and where sometimes I discipline him and I'm most hard on him is the value of consideration and being kind to others and stuff like that. So I, I think legacy oftentimes is investing in the idea of value and, and, and how to, how do you pass those on? There are moments, obviously, when something wrong happens and that's a teaching moment, but a lot of it is oftentimes you, me, meaning like, you know, how do I show up? And, you know, that's a constant struggle. It is. Both of us are in a spot where we're helping others. We're speaking, we're writing. And sometimes I look in the mirror and, and I know that I have flaws and things yeah. that I want to get better. But how blessed are we and all people in our space to teach others to get to keep it in front of us every day, right? Because when you're out there teaching others, it makes you better because it reminds us that we're not perfect and we've got to keep working. I have a 14 year old daughter. And to me, I think we're, you and I are very aligned and that I want her to see the right values and, and have the right consideration for others. And yes, I care about her grades and all those things, but really how she grown up to be a young lady, right? That, yeah. that can make a difference to other people in this world. Yeah. I, I love this idea. We, you know, um, thinking about our kids as, as really sort of the platform for legacy, but I also think about, you know, ourselves and what you mentioned, the flaws and, and you're right. When you're in the public, sometimes you can't be as good as you're always talking, right? <laughs> it's just hard, right? It, you know, huh. you get frustrated, you get angry, you you know, you're right. You're, we all have our called so so called you know calm self, and then we have the stress self. And the stress self, you're like, oh, you know, when that shows up, you're like, oh, where did that person come from? <laughs> they don't work together, right? Yeah, they, that. they yeah, just don't work together. So. Gosh, I, I could talk to you for hours. I think we have a lot of the same values and I think our listeners are going to love hearing from you. How would someone get in touch with you if they want to get your book? They want to have you speak. They just want to pick your brain, ask you a favor, shall we say, <laughs> to pick your brain. How, how do people reach out to you? Yeah, probably the easiest way is just get on my website. You can, you can do everything you just said on my website. And the website's so simple. My name, it's literally six letters. And it's my first name, S-O-O-N. And my last name, YU, soonyou.com. And yeah, I'm always happy to talk to people. You know, it doesn't always have to lead to any commercial interest. Sometimes it's just like you and I. I learned so much in this conversation that you and I have, and it's fun. Well, thank you, Soon. If you've enjoyed today's podcast and want to learn more, visit us at southwesternlegacy.com. Shoot us an email via our easy contact form to find out how you can become an agent or how we can meet your needs for final expense coverage. You can find this and other episodes at letstalklegacypod.com on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Let's Talk Legacy is a presentation of the Southwestern Legacy Insurance Group, a member of Southwestern Family of Companies. Thank you.